If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History magazine, and welcome to July 2011, part five of the BBC History magazine podcast. BBC History magazine is, of course, Britain's best-selling history monthly, on sale in all good news agents and by subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History magazine. Coming up, we have... You can trace a kind of family tree of the seaside holiday that begins with Northern England. John Walton there on the Great British Holiday. Edward was, I think, popularly seen as a, a promising boy who was manipulated, almost a puppet king. And that was Ralph Holbrook on King Edward VI. So, our first interview is with John K. Walton, a professor of history currently based at the University of the Basque Country in Bilbao. He is an expert on the seaside holiday, which was, he believes, a thoroughly British invention. Our deputy editor, Rob Attar, spoke to him recently to find out more. First of all, when and where did the seaside holiday begin? The seaside holiday, as a kind of modern activity based on sea bathing, begins in um, England in the early 18th century. We're not quite sure exactly where. Um, People are coming along now and saying, well, the first evidence really is from Liverpool, but previously we thought it was more the Scarborough-Whitby area, especially Scarborough. Long before that, of course, the Romans did sea bathing, but they didn't have seaside resorts of the sort that we have. Also, in the 17th century, the Dutch got really quite interested in seaside environments, but it was more about artists and um, the celebration of the quaintness of fishing communities than actually about bathing. So really, it's an English invention, and it's in the north of England. And so why do you think it was that this didn't come about earlier? Why did it take until the 18th century? It's partly a medical thing. 
In the early 18th century, doctors picked up on older popular traditions of going to the coast and um, bathing in the sea and incorporated them into orthodox medicine. So they started prescribing the seaside, just as previously they'd prescribed taking the waters at a spa-like bath. And of course Scarborough combined the two, which helps to explain why Scarborough was early in the seaside field. So it's partly about changes in medical fashion, building on older traditions and... um, It's partly about changing attitudes to the coast. During the 18th century, there was a kind of revolution in people's attitudes too. And it applied to both mountains and the seaside. And from being forbidding and frightening, they became attractive, interesting, sublime, associated with the might of an all-powerful god and so forth. And so why was it that this took place in Britain rather than anywhere else, and perhaps in particular in the north of England? It's difficult to work out why the north of England was first, although it helped that um, early medical prescriptions were for cold northern seas. The Mediterranean was no good. It was hot and swampy and unhealthy. You had to have brisk waves and cold water. Plenty of other places had brisk waves and cold water, though. So it's really hard to say why it began there. It just perhaps it just did, you know, it had to begin somewhere. Maybe it was chance, really, that began in Britain. Well, that, that, for example, would apply to other things like the cotton industry. There's no particular reason why the cotton industry should have set up in Britain and every reason why it shouldn't have. And there's always this kind of randomness to history. And was there any connection with these early seaside resorts and, say, the Industrial Revolution and the Transport Revolution? The seaside resorts grew up in step with the the Industrial Revolution, the Transport Revolution, the professionalisation of society, the Scientific Revolution. All these things were in step. It's not that the seaside resorts were somehow caused by the Industrial Revolution. They were part of the same set of phenomena. Because what we're talking about, after all, is what becomes an industry. It's the industry of providing healthy and pleasant environments competitively for people who have money to spend on health and leisure. And I guess particularly railways must have facilitated people getting to the coast and getting to these resorts. The railways made a big difference, but the resort system was already well developed before they came along. People were able to get to the coast um, even on the primitive roads of the early 18th century. People used to um, walk or travel on horseback or travelling carts to Blackpool from East Lancashire, for example, long before the railways. And of course sailing vessels and later the early paddle steamers from the early 19th century took people to coastal resorts like Margate. What the railways did was make the seaside much more accessible um, to um, a kind of popular market which developed early, what becomes really a working class market. And it also means that it's much easier for families to go to the coast and stay for longer periods. And so it gives a real boost to that emergent seaside economy because railways saved time and money and, of course, expense on en route. If you're travelling by stagecoach to the seaside, you'd have to buy meals en route, you might, might have to stay overnight. The railways did away with all that. So did this mean that the seaside holiday became something that attracted all different classes? Yes, the seaside holiday was for practically everybody. By the end of the 19th century, certainly in industrial areas, you had to be really poor or have a lot of children dependent on you, or um, to be very old, for example, not to be able to get to the coast. And I suppose that's quite unusual, because nowadays you can't, I can't really think of many places where you'd get such a mixing of classes. This was a real democratic time of holidays. Yes, the seaside did become a democracy, partly because, of course, you couldn't effectively privatise the beach. 
the beach between high tide and low tide was effectively common land. You couldn't keep people off it. Gradually, local authorities started introducing bylaws to prevent people from bathing nude and shocking people. The, the seaside became a great kind of social melting pot. It varied resort by resort, of course, and the bigger the resort and the more easily accessible, the bigger the social mix it would have. But on the other hand, of course, people could find their own areas within a big resort. So you had the, the Golden Mile in Blackpool, which was working class. You had um, the North Shore, which was quite respectable middle class. And so what kind of places became seaside resorts? Really, almost anywhere that was on the coast that wasn't a big industrial port. And of course, even Liverpool had its sea bathers at the beginning when it was only a small place. Because there was something to interest people in almost any kind of seaside environment. There was a market, for example, for enjoying the quaintness and the unusual novel activities of particularly inshore fishing ports. But people staying at Cleethorpes would go and visit the docks and the fishing harbour at Grimsby as well. And so when people were on the seaside holidays, what kind of activities would they be participating in? What they'd do on holiday would depend very much on social class, resources, and whether they went as a family. And working class families didn't really start to go to the seaside in a big way until after the Second World War. It was younger people and older people without dependent children. Quite early on, you get that middle-class family beat set of activities involving buckets and spades and sandcastles. I've just been looking, actually, at pictures of holidaymakers at Mar del Plata in Argentina in the early 20th century with the children carrying buckets and spades. That really does spread enormously. So you've got all those beach activities, you've got beach entertainments, outdoor entertainments, the um, black and white minstrels, then the Pieros, who whitened up and wore kind of clown outfits... You also get urban entertainment from the big cities, really transferred to the seaside. But of course the big seaside thing is the pier. So how did people behave when they went on these seaside holidays? Was it an opportunity for them to let their hair down and escape from the misery of their working lives? Really, the seaside is an opportunity for people to escape from the constraints of daily life. And it's an opportunity to pretend to be oh, a bit higher up the social scale than you really are. People would dress up at the seaside to impress people they didn't know. That was true at the spas like Bath as well, and they became great marriage markets. But the problem was that you didn't really know what you were getting because people could act out a part at the seaside. And people would let their hair down, but on the other hand, you also never knew who you were going to bump into in terms of people from back home. Because particularly in working class resorts, whole towns would go on holiday at the same time. So you're always looking over your shoulder to see um, if the Sunday school teacher was watching you or if the foreman was watching you or whatever. So um, people did bring their own kind of built-in constraints and rules with them. And you mentioned about people all going at the same time. Was it like nowadays that people take their two weeks in August or were people going to seaside at all times of the year? Right from the beginning, the seaside got concentrated into July and August. Because, of course, that was always the school holidays. When it was no longer necessary for school children to help with the harvest, they could come to the seaside. So that problem of the season being concentrated into a couple of months has always been around. And when would you say was the heyday of the British seaside holiday? I would put it at the 1950s, immediately after World War II, when holidays with pay for um, everybody kicked in for the first time, and when... Really, practically everybody could get to the seaside.
after that, particularly by the 70s, you're getting a lot of problems with competition from other kinds of destination, both at home and abroad, and the dislocations that go as well with the decline of the railways and the rise of carborne tourism. And that in turn goes with the rise of new kinds of holidays based on caravans rather than the old resorts. So people are still going to the seaside in the 70s, but more of them are going by car and more of them are going to caravans rather than to tr traditional boarding houses. And also you, you mentioned something earlier about Argentina and the British seaside holiday, am I right, it actually spread around the world and a lot of British institutions were actually taken up by other countries. Yes, the seaside holiday is one of the great British cultural exports. It spreads, first of all, into France and northwestern Europe. It's reached Spain by the 1820s. It gets exported, of course, to the United States and to um, everywhere, really, where there are European settler colonists. So the French take it to Indochina, for example. It sets up in Australia. It sets up in South Africa. It mutates. It, ch it changes into something subtly different everywhere it goes. And, of course, climate affects it. Local social practices affect it. You can trace a kind of family tree of the seaside holiday that begins with Northern England. So then people going from Britain, even those going to the Mediterranean, are still experiencing something of the British seaside holiday because of the traditions that went there? Yes, it's, it's mutated considerably by the time you get to, um, oh, let's say, Torremolinos or Magaluf or Sagaro. It starts from that original wellspring. The big change, of course, is the shift of emphasis from medicinal sea bathing to sunbathing, which begins in the early 20th century and gathers momentum. And that, I suppose, Britain doesn't have an advantage of, say, Spain or Greece and something like that. Oh, no, that's right. The rise of sun worship, as it were, as a motive for seaside holidays, is very damaging competitively to Britain. But the other thing about Britain, of course, is that Britain's own seaside holiday market, although it was the pioneer, was always overwhelmingly for British people. Britain never had an international seaside economy. Britain's always exported holidaymakers rather than importing them. And just finally, am I right to say that there's now something of a redevelopment of British seaside holidays? Some of the British seaside resorts are actually trying to sort of return to their heyday. Oh, there's, there's definitely a strong focus on seaside regeneration. And in some places you can see that having successes, often with niche markets, you know, particular markets of special interest tourism that particular resorts focus on. But my own sense is that as the recession continues, and I see no sign of it ending, there are going to be more people holidaying within Britain, and of course also, though, more people not taking holidays. So you think the British seaside holiday isn't dead yet? The British seaside holiday has never died, and there's a great deal of scope for um, encouraging and reviving it. It needs the right sort of supportive government policies, which it isn't likely to get. But there's been a lot of recent research showing, in fact, that the decline of the seaside holiday has been a matter of certain badly hit localities, which have had a lot of publicity. And it's been, to a large extent, a media construct. And in a lot of places, life has gone on. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. That was John K. Walton of the University of the Basque Country. You can read his article about seaside holidays in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is out right now. Now on to our next interview, which is the third in our Tudor series. We've already heard from Stephen Gunn on Henry VII and George Bernard on Henry VIII, so now we move on to Edward VI, and our expert guide for this is Professor Ralph Holbrook, formerly of Reading University. Henry VIII's son, Edward VI, was a boy when he came to the throne. His reign was short, just six years, 1547 to 1553, but not without its significance. Now we're running this series on the Tudors to time with the August issue of the magazine, which is a Tudor special, because I've invited five historians to argue it out about who was the most important Tudor monarch. On the podcast, you're going to be hearing my interviews with each of the experts in turn. And you'll be pleased to know we've also produced a special BBC History magazine Tudor's audiobook where you can hear the full-length interviews that I recorded with all the experts. So you get half an hour each on Kings Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, plus Queen's Mary and Elizabeth. We're charging just £1.99 for this and you can download it via our website at historyextra.com slash audiobooks slash Tudors. Anyway, on with the interview. Perhaps you could start off with um, just exploring what the what are the key moments in his reign. So, what would you say are the, are those key moments in the reign of, of Edward the Sixth? The reign falls naturally into three blocks or portions. Okay, from um, the assumption of power by Edward's maternal uncle, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, mm. as he became very quickly, who is removed from his protectorship in the autumn of 1549. So that's period one. Mm -hmm. Then the second period of what might almost be called uneasy partnership when John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, tries to conciliate Somerset, tries to keep him on board, in the end decides that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And a trial is instigated. He is accused of plotting and executed in January 1552. Mm -hmm. So that's period two. Within those blocks of time, in during Somerset's supremacy, there are two sort of symbolic key moments. The first is the invasion of Scotland Mm -hmm. in September 1547. This is very much Somerset's pet project. Right. And the second key moment which is really the consummation or the uh, climax of a much longer process, is the imposition of the first English Book of Common Prayer in June 1549. And these are the sort of keynote moments for keynote policies of the protectorate. I would take as the keynote moment of the second period, that that uneasy period, when the Earl of Warwick is Lord President of the Privy Council. He doesn't take, he doesn't take the title of protector. Mm-hmm. He's working through the Privy Council. The key moment of that period is the confrontation between Edward and his sister Mary over Mary's continuing to hear mass, to have mass said in her household. That's in March 1551. Mm-hmm. And in, that, in, the, in, the, in the final period, was there any... You, you talked about the first two periods. What about the, the, the last section? 
Yeah, that last section is the shortest of all. Of course, it's just over a year, and I'd say the onset of Edward's final illness mm -hmm. in January or February, okay, um, fifteen fifty-three. Okay, so perhaps you've you've talked about the the people who were uh, in charge of yes. of Edward and 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 the reign. I suppose um, we're going to talk a little bit about the sort of person Edward was, but when we when we're talking about Edward the Sixth. Should we be talking about the actions of Edward the Sixth, or are we really talking about the actions of those who were who were in charge? Because obviously he was a boy when he came to the throne; he was only nine. So, who, who, what are we talking about here? When we're looking at policy, in the first period, we're looking at very much at policies which were conceived and executed by Edward's. We can hardly call Somerset an advisor mm. because he was. Um, exercising quasi-kingly authority. Mm -hmm. um, so the Duke of Somerset, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, they are the key makers of policy. Now, during Warwick, later Northum from uh, autumn 1551, Northumberland's, during his period of supremacy, he is increasingly taking note of Edward's own views. Mm -hmm. And it's increasingly necessary to involve Edward in government, at least to the extent of keeping him informed. And he takes a very informed interest in what's happening. And particularly in the last two years of his life and reign, he's writing... Uh, papers about policy. It can't be shown that those actually uh, influenced uh, these particular documents, influenced policy. Mm. The big controversy is the over the attempt to exclude his sister Mary from the succession. Is that Edwards or isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is the big question that has divided historians of the reign. There's now almost a consensus among historians that it was Edward's idea. I'm still inclined to be doubtful about that. We'll never, I think, know for sure. It's impossible to clinch the case either way. But certainly in the last few years, there's been an increasingly confident view expressed by the majority of historians that it was Edward's idea in the first place. Okay, so so moving on from that then, how much of an assessment of the personality of Edwards can we make? Can we really know what sort of a person he was? He came to the throne as a boy, died a teenager. I mean, there's this, this episode when Edward's a 13-year-old boy berating uh, Mary for, for, for not um, following the, the Protestant line. So is that... Is that the action of a of a of a, a teenage boy upset with his older sister, or is that the action of a of a devout Protestant angry that the the, the true religion isn't being followed? Both. Right. Both. Okay. And it's very, very difficult to disentangle to disentangle the strands. Okay. And then after that comes what Edward describes in his Chronicle or Journal as a threat of war from Charles V. Charles 
feels that he cannot in honour stand by and see his cousin bullied into submission. Mm. And that he must do, he must try to secure promises for free, of freedom of worship for her. Edward sees this as an intolerable infringement. He's very reluctant to temporise. John Dudley is described by, in the fullest account we have, or at least the most vivid account of these events we have from Richard Morrison, as wanting all the time to keep his options open, to appear, if possible, a friend to the emperor, not wanting to break with, with Mary. On the other hand, wanting to appear a friend of France. Edward's obstinacy threatens to reduce his freedom of manoeuvre. It actually pushes him into a change of policy. Some people think that it's not for, for it's, it's what he what he he wanted, uh, and that is a closer entente with France. I don't think he necessarily wanted this beforehand. What happens is that in July, the, after the confrontation in March, very very soon, uh, an embassy is sent to to France, and uh, negotiations then subsequently begin with a view to. Edward's marrying the Princess Elizabeth of France. The English negotiators first ask for the implementation of the marriage with Mary Stuart, which had been agreed in the Treaty of Greenwich in Henry VIII's reign. The French say, no, we, we've spent, we've we, we, we invested too much in, um, in upholding Scottish independence, and, and of course, they, he, she's by now, she's betrothed to Henry's son, Francis. Uh, has been for, for a long time, and that's a non-starter. So once that's out of the way, negotiations uh, uh, get underway seriously for Edward's betrothal to Princess Elizabeth. And with this, once this entente has been concluded, the regime in England has a freer hand to deal with its internal problems. What are those internal problems? Arrestive and discontented Duke of Somerset, a loose cannon, I think justifiably in the eyes of the regime. We can't pin down exactly what he may have plotted. According to Edward's chronicle, according to his account of Somerset's trial, Somerset actually admitted that he had considered having John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, executed, but had subsequently changed his mind about this and decided not to do it. Of course, this is what Edward was being fed. We don't know whether the, whether Somerset. We don't. We can't know for certain whether Somerset actually said those words. If if he did, then even though he changed his mind, it was it was clear that he was he was a loose cannon. That he was a somewhat volatile and dangerous element in the situation. So the friendship with France enables the regime to 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 deal with Somerset or the inner circle of the regime, it also enables them to tighten the screws on Mary without fear of foreign intervention. Somerset is destroyed without, and, and Mary is clamped, is, is actually the measures against Mary come, uh, they culminate in August, very 
shortly after the negotiation with France has, has concluded, then Somerset is arrested in the autumn and finally tried in December. So this secures the dominance of Northumberland and his associates, who are promoted in the... including, of course, Northumberland himself, who is promoted from being Earl of Warwick in autumn 1551. Is it, um, is it too trite a question to ask you to identify the key achievements in the reign of Edward? The key achievement must be the making of England an officially Protestant country. Mm. Uh, but that was only only lasted for the you know the length of his reign. So is it also a failure in the sense that yes. he was followed by Mary? Yes, it is also the key failure of the reign that, in the short time available, it was impossible, really, to secure the support for this revolution in the hearts of the English people. There was support for Protestant Reformation. But I think it was minority support. I think the majority were probably indifferent to various degrees or lukewarm right. in their support. For many people, there may have been elements they liked and others they didn't like. But the I do believe that the those who disliked the Reformation, out, the Protestant Reformation of, Ed, of Edward's reign, outnumbered those who did support it. Particularly, of course, in um, the provinces and the further away you got from London, probably the stronger the, um, the support for the old religion. But there's lots of conservatism outside the North and the West Country. So that was Professor Ralph Holbrook, who taught history at Reading University. His books include Death, Religion and the Family in England, 1480 to 1750, published by Oxford. Before I go, I'd like to mention our new BBC History magazine, Reader's Book Club. The basic idea is that we ask you, the history enthusiasts, to read a particular history book and come up with questions about it that we then put to the author. You can find more details about joining up on our site at historyextra.com forward slash reader. Of course, as ever, we're keen to know what you think about the podcast in general, so email any observations to podcast at historyextra.com or contact us on Twitter or Facebook. That's it for this week. Just a reminder that the website for our new Tudors audiobook is historyextra.com slash audiobooks slash Tudors, and next week we have Anna Whitelock on Queen Mary I and Mark Morris on the Conquest of Wales under King Edward I. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.